Oh, Lord, it's a supernatural thing when your people gather around your word by your spirit. So I pray that you grow us up in this moment, God. You've given me words to share, and I pray they're a blessing and they're an encouragement. And that all glory goes to Christ. God, build up your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Revelation, chapter 1. That's the very last book of the Bible and the very first chapter of the book. Revelation, chapter 1. Since it's a new year, I'm going to describe how Jesus is going to come back this year. <laughs> Just a joke. Just a joke. We will see Jesus, though, here in Revelation chapter 1. And let me say Happy New Year. Also need to see Happy Christmas, Merry Christmas. I wasn't here last week. I was traveling home to Tennessee See all my family, my mother, cousins, that one crazy uncle. <laughs> you probably all have someone in your family who's just a little socially awkward during these times. Pastor Hunter knows about this. In his family, he is the crazy uncle. But these times, the season really can be crazy. Um... Commentators have noticed that the energy in our culture just changes as the new year comes. If you think about that movie, It's a Wonderful Life, you'll think of the cool septa tones, the rhythm of that movie, then kind of slide over into the fireworks and the energy of New Year's Eve, and you can get a sense of the building stress level and excitement that we're all in here at this time of year. You gotta go back to work. You'll have lofty goals, many of you, idealistic resolutions. You might have quotas to fill, new work projects, not to mention the normal parenting stresses, maintaining a family budget in the new year. This inflation is aggressive. How in the world do you buy groceries and save money? It can be intense. And many of us over Christmas were reminded of just how broken some of our family relationships are. So it can be a very real thing when the darkness begins to settle in. You may feel depressive thoughts, anxiety, loneliness. All of these are common during this season and it turns out as they surface, they're only the tip of the iceberg that is a troubled soul. We all feel these things. If not now, then later on in the year, you will come in contact with these type of troubles. And so the main point of this sermon today is going to be fear not, rest in Jesus. Fear not. Rest in Jesus. If you found your way to Revelation chapter 1 with me, let's just look at the first part of verse 17. Verse 17 
Revelation 1, the context here is one of Jesus' followers, his disciples, John, has been placed into exile. This is many years after the resurrection and death of Jesus Christ. So his follower, John, has been exiled because he's talking too much about Jesus. He's been put on an island away from everybody so that nobody can be impacted by his witness, but they were wrong because God chose to give John a vision. And Revelation 1 brings us into this vision. And the vision is the revelation of Jesus Christ in all of his splendor and all of his glory. Let's read the first part of verse 17. John says, when I saw him, that's Jesus, I fell at his feet. As though dead, John falls at the feet of Christ because he's scared. It's tremendous to see Jesus in all of his glory. His soul is troubled. Now this year, your soul might be troubled by other things. The pains of your own aging. A settled lack of purpose. Maybe it's the persistent injustices in our society. Maybe it's the general brokenness of our world. But I want you to notice what happens next in this text because it's very helpful. It's helpful and hopeful here. First, I want you to see that when John is troubled, Jesus does not leave him alone. He comes to him. He comes near. Next in the scripture, the Bible says, but Jesus comes and he lays his right hand on John. These aren't rejecting hands. They're hands of affirmation, a touch of consolation, a brush of reassurance here. The Son of Man is here to help. Now hear his word. What does he say to John? He says, fear not. Fear not. These words are less a bark command and more of a whispered comfort. This is not a finger wag or a reprimand from Jesus here. It's a beckoning. It's an invitation to come. The tone is soft. It's not shouted. It's spoken not by an appraiser or an evaluator, but instead by an older brother who knows the troubles of your heart intimately. Listen, it's vital for us this year to see this pattern of Jesus in the Bible. He's giving rest, but watch how he gives rest. He gives rest through spiritual knowledge of himself. Jesus will say, fear not, and and here's why. He's going to tell you what he's done and who he is. And that is to be the basis and foundation of your spiritual rest. That's something we can take advantage of here today. As the new year dawns, maybe you're starting a new Bible reading plan. Maybe you're doing other disciplines. We must remember that the key will be seen more and more of Jesus. One author I read this week puts it this way. He says, the point 
is to bring the living Christ himself into sharper, starker contrast to see him loom larger and more radiant and more glorious than ever before. Get this analogy. You need to trade in our snorkel and face mask for scuba gear that will take you down into the depths of Jesus that you have never peered into before. Get that analogy? So frustrating if you've ever been snorkeling because unless you can hold your breath, you can only go down five, ten feet maybe. But if you trade that for scuba gear, man, you can probe the depths of the waters. And that's our invitation here from the scripture today. Jesus says, I'm coming near to you. I'm giving you comfort. He wants you to know himself more and more, to look deeply at who he is, to know him, and the Spirit will bolster your hope. He'll soothe your emotions, calm your fears. So that's going to be the idea behind the sermon today. Let's just see who Jesus says he is, and the Spirit will use this to grant rest to your souls. All right, here's the first thing Jesus says about himself to calm fears and to give rest to your souls. Here's the first thing. Let's look at verse 17. See which part of himself he chooses to reveal. Might not be what you choose, but Jesus knows what you need, and he reveals this. What's his prescription for a troubled soul? Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Why? I am the first and the last. Seems a strange way to give somebody comfort, right? I'm the first and the last. What does he mean by that? Well, he doesn't just mean I've always existed and I always will. That's not exactly the angle Jesus is getting at. In fact, this phrase, first and the last, has its root in the Old Testament. And we see it used by God when he's working with a very troubled people. If you want to, you can turn to the book of Isaiah, verse 41. It's a new year. Get used to turning in that Bible. Or you can follow along from Isaiah 41. This is where this phrase is used earlier in the scriptures. The context in Isaiah 41, you might remember, is a very, very troubled people of God. They've gone through the experience of the exile. What's the exile? Well, that's when the Babylonian Empire came into their country and devastated things. So much so that they enslaved the people. They brought them out. They deported the people and brought them into the Babylonian nation. So now God's people are facing dire straits. They're facing a situation where they don't even have their homeland. They're stuck out of Israel in Babylon. And God comes to them and he speaks to them through the words of Isaiah the prophet. He's going to give them comfort, but he does it in a roundabout way. It's really, really helpful once you understand it. Here's what he says. What's happening in, verse, in chapter 41 is that God's people, they know the score. They're trying to follow God, and then they were deported. So they're wondering, is God the one I should be following? 
if he's really so powerful, why am I stuck in Babylon? Why have I been removed from everything that's dear to me, even my family? Why am I all alone? Maybe I should be trusting in something else. Sound familiar? Here in America, we're tempted to trust in our own selves. The Israelites in Babylon, they had their own temptation. Nonetheless, God answers them as he himself is on trial here. Listen to what he says, and then I'll explain it. He says here, long about verse 2, Isaiah 41, God asks them a question. He says, listen, who stirred up somebody from the east whom victory meets at every step? What did he mean by this? Well, the Israeli people, they were captive in Babylon because of the conqueror, the kingdom of Babylon. But God is saying, you know what? I'm bringing someone to conquer the conqueror. He's coming from the east, and it is King Cyrus. Now, King Cyrus is the king of an entirely different empire, Persia. And it's not a godly empire, but yet God has chosen to use Cyrus to come in and rescue his people. God says this about Cyrus in the following verses. He says, Cyrus gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes him like dust with his sword, like driven stubble for his bow. He pursues them and he passes on safely. This is who Cyrus is, and he's coming to rescue you. Now, here's the important part. Verse 4, let this grab you. God says, who has performed and done this? Cyrus is coming, and he's rescuing you. Who's really done that, says God? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. What's God mean when he says, I'm the first, I'm the last? He means that he's always been ruling history. God is the king of history. He wrote the story of God's people being deported and then rescued by King Cyrus. God is writing the story of all history and he's writing your story too. Over the break, I read a novel by James Patterson and a part of the story was the human trafficking in Eastern Europe and since TCC is actively working against this in the country of Moldova, I thought it was interesting to read about in the context of the story. But as I'm reading it, I had the experience that you do as you're watching a movie or you're reading the story, probably you're watching it or you're reading it and you're following the main character and you're like, ah, man, don't go down that road, especially if it's a thriller, right? Don't open that door. Don't believe him when he tells that to you. Ah, man. Over and over I'm thinking this, thinking, I would not write the story the way this guy's writing it. I would have had that character make that choice. And then, but by the time I got to the end, I saw that this world-famous writer had easily resolved all the tensions and he tied everything up to write the story exactly the way he wanted to write it. And as you face your fears this year, I want you to remember you're not writing your own story. God is. And that's good news because only God is truly good and truly capable 
ultimately powerful and kind. Now Isaiah 41 puts Revelation 1 back into focus. If you turn back to Revelation 1, think about what Jesus means when he says, I'm the first, I'm the last, fear not. When you feel like you're drowning in the chaos of your life, you must grip tightly to this reality. Jesus is the first and the last. He is God and it is his divine right to control history and be the king of it. Now towards the end of Revelation, in fact, in the last chapter, in chapter 22, if you want to turn there quickly, we see once again very last of the Bible, the same phrase is on the lips of our Savior Jesus. You might remember. Starting here, 12 and 13 of chapter 22 in Revelation. Verse 12. Revelation is over. The book is done. Jesus gets the final word and he says, Behold, I'm coming soon and I'm bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. What's the context here? What's Jesus talking about? He's now asserting his ruling over history in the context of justice. Right? Listen to his language. I'm going to repay evildoers. I'm going to bring my recompense. What in the world does that big word mean, recompense? It means... He's going to make amends for all who have suffered. He's going to settle the score. Why? Because he's the good king of all history. Justice will be served when Jesus comes. Those are bold claims. Why should we believe him? Very next verse tells us, verse 13. Because I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. I am the beginning. And I am the end. I know how this ends because I wrote the book, says Jesus. Now, who is it here that the king of all history is addressing in Revelation 22? Who needs to hear this? Look at verse 16. Read it for yourself. I, I Jesus... I've sent my angel to testify to you, John, about these things. Why? Who's it for? It's for the churches. It's for the churches. That includes TCC. And it includes you as an individual following Christ. Jesus rules all history. Therefore, do not fear. So we learn here in Revelation that Jesus is ruling history as the first and the last. He'll redeem all things. He'll make all things new. He will bring justice. So there's rest to be found here in this future work of Jesus. Fear not, rest in Jesus. But how do we wrestle with these things now? Jesus is not back yet. How do we wrestle with this in our everyday lives? Well, my first stint as a pastor was not here at TCC. 
although it was about 20 years ago, I remember being an associate pastor in Western North Carolina, up on a mountain, literally, at a church there, much bigger than this one, had a diverse group of ages. And I remember talking to one of the church leaders there. If I was 30 years old, he was 60, a dear old man, wise in some ways. But when I told him, good King Jesus is ruling all of history, his demeanor changed. He looked down at me in a loving yet patronizing way and he shook his head. And he said what you might be tempted to think in the midst of your troubles. He says, I can't believe Jesus is ruling our world because there is so much hurting, so much pain. The 60-year-old man, he felt the challenges of a restless soul. So he opted to believe that man ultimately ruled history with man's choices. One thing I love about the Bible is it does not sugarcoat the tension that you feel between our messy lives and a good God that's ruling history. The Bible doesn't just gloss over that. In fact, one passage, it makes it very clear and it's helpful for us today. Lamentations 3, if you want to turn there, you can. It's not too far after Isaiah. It's a couple books after Isaiah, if you found Isaiah. Lamentations 3, I know we're bouncing around here, but it's good to hear from God's word. Lamentations 3, here we see in poetic form the struggles of a man who knows the confusion of facing pain in a world ruled by a sovereign good God. You can read about it. He knows God's ruling, and yet his life stinks sometimes. Verse 2 Lamentations 3, follow along his argument here. It's very clear. He says, the Lord has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, God turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Get the picture. He feels like God is taking the knife and turning it over and over all day long. He's made my flesh and my skin waste away. Man, I didn't get past the parking lot this morning until I heard the story of a sick member family here at TCC. Body's wasting away. This guy feels it. He's broken my bones. God has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He's made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. On and on he goes. It's a heartfelt lamentation. This guy's dealing with it. And like my friend on the mountain years ago, this poet is thinking, if God is writing the story of my life, I want to burn that manuscript. This doesn't feel good right now. I'm not liking this suffering but later in the chapter, he rebounds. His soul bounces up. Even though his suffering hasn't changed, it's amazing. This gritty, honest poet changes the direction of his thinking. And you see his soul has found rest. How does it happen? Well, out of the blue, apparently, this author starts to dwell on God's word. 
because he starts to quote and echo scripture. This man's reading his Bible. And so he knows that God is writing this history and God writes history so as to give himself to his people. He quotes Exodus 34. He quotes Psalm 16. He quotes Psalm 73. And he recalls the goodness of God so that by the time we get down to Lamentations 3.22, we hear what it means to rest in Jesus. This guy is able to say, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And I might say every year. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. He's quoting the Bible that he's read. And he's trusting in it. He's resting in it. The Lord's my portion. Therefore, I will hope in him. That's resting in Jesus. I will hope in him. This man's suffering, written by God himself, has done one thing. It has brought him near to God. It's brought him close to God. In a broken and fallen world, your trials are unavoidable. Sadness will come. But God's control allows him to turn evil to good. Only God can turn evil to good. In this man's case, his suffering led him to depend more and more on God in a way that satisfied him. This year, I just want to encourage you. Allow your trials, your suffering, your pain to turn you to Christ. And I promise you, he will meet you there. You'll see the same Jesus that John did, laying his right hand tenderly on your shoulder. That's just who Jesus is. That's how he works. Famously, Jesus himself has extended this offer to us in the book of Matthew 11. You may know this passage. Jesus says, this year, 2023, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. What's a yoke? That's that wooden thing that holds oxen together. Actually gives someone else control over the oxen. Allows them to be obedient. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Follow me. Trust in me. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. I won't turn you away. I'm accessible. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. It's a metaphor, of course, of giving Jesus control of your life and following him. Dane Ortland is helpful here when he says this. He says, Jesus is using a kind of irony when he says this. He's saying that the yoke he lays on his followers 
is actually a non-yoke. Get this. It's like telling a drowning man that he must put on the burden of a life preserver only to hear the drowning man shout back at you, no way, not me, this is hard enough to tread water. I'm drowning here in these stormy waters. The last thing I need is the added burden of a life preserver around my body. Praise God. The non-yoke that he offers us in Jesus Christ, for it is the rescuing yoke, isn't it? Know today that Christ, the first and the last, rules history so that we'll see his glory and that we will find rest in him. This promise. Even still, with all that's going on, it can still be very hard to get up in the morning. Paul Tripp writes insightfully here of how our fears and anxieties can begin to mount up. You worry about the horrible conversation you had with your husband. You worry about your teenage son who seems to be losing his way. The job you lost and your upcoming rent payment or the medical test that came back positive. Perhaps you lie awake with regret over choices you made that you cannot undo. Well, this truth of Christ ruling history reminds you that no matter what trials you face on any particular day, you wake up to a world that is under wise and righteous control. And because he is sovereign over the details of your life, he is coming near. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. Just as the lyricist in Lamentations 3, we must see that the ruler of history has come near. Surely Christmas teaches us that, if it teaches us anything. God has come near in Jesus Christ. If it scares you to death to face the mess of your own life or to face the mess of your child's life or your grandchild's life, Know that God did not leave you alone. He's close. He's near enough to run to. He's close enough to collapse yourself upon his shoulder in Jesus Christ. Come close to Christ today. He will be your portion. And trust that one day he will right all wrongs. Fear not. Rest in Jesus. There's one more thing here in Revelation 1 I wanted to point out for your encouragement. We've seen that Jesus is the first and the last. What does that mean? He's the king of all history. You can rest in that. He's the near king of all history. Rest in that. What else do we see in Revelation 1 that can give rest to our troubled heart? I look now down through verse 18. Remember, Jesus said, fear not, I am the first and the last, and then he's going to give you something else, a little bit of nugget. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. 
What does that mean? Well, there are really two related encouragements here. The first one is, fear not, rest in Jesus because he is alive as a conqueror. After he died on a cross, he was put in a grave and he was left for death, but death did not stick with Jesus. He rose up and he conquered death and the realm of death, Hades. Now he's got the keys. Because I have teenagers and a lot of them, I have a lot of cars in my parking lot. You're not going anywhere in any of them unless you have the keys. If you've got the keys to the car, then you can go out and do your teenage driving. But without the keys, you're not going anywhere. Jesus says, I'm the one with the keys. I control death. I'm victorious over death. I conquered death, Satan, sin, and this changes everything. Over the break, I read the tragic story of a woman named Luz Cuvez. You may have heard of Luz. On that fateful December day, Luz was a new mom when she noticed some smoke in her apartment. Pretty soon there was a raging fire and like any good mom would do, she ran into the smoke-filled bedroom of her 10-day-old daughter. She went into the crib right where she was placed and her daughter was gone. Started coughing from the smoke. The flames were beating down so she left the home. The home later burned down and she saw firemen came, coming out of the house and she desperately went to the firemen and said, you find my daughter. And the fireman said, no, the whole place was consumed. We didn't see anything. And for the next six years, Luz lived a hopeless life, full of sorrow every day until one day she was at a birthday party in her neighborhood and she sees a little six-year-old girl. And she sees a familiar dimple. No kidding, she calls the little girl over and she's astounded at what this girl looks like. So familiar. So familiar that she says, turn around, little girl. I see some bubble gum in your hair. Girl turns around, she takes the bubble gum. Luz snips a little bit of hair out, grabs the hair. Sure enough, she takes this DNA evidence. They do the processing. Turns out that this little girl six years later, is Luz's daughter. She come back from the dead and it changes everything. What happened? A kidnapper snuck into the apartment and stolen her little daughter and started the fire to cover her tracks. Luz was reunited with her daughter after six years. Her entire life changed. I know that story is troubling and shocking. But in the story of Jesus Christ, he truly did die. And then he rose again. And this changes everything about your reality as a follower of Jesus Christ. Pastor Justin Holcomb says this. He said, because of Jesus' resurrection, all threats against you are tamed. All threats against you are tamed. 
Because Jesus conquered death. So death and evil aren't the end of your story. You can have hope. The Apostle Paul knew this beyond any doubt. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, how the Apostle Paul wrote just about this, the difference it makes that Jesus is alive forevermore. He passionately writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And get this, your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, the people you know who are Christians who have died, if Christ is not alive, then they have perished. If in Christ we have hope in only this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. What's he saying? Without the resurrection, your Christianity is lame. But we know that Christ indeed does live. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians and says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Again, notice the steps here for rest. There's a pattern here of obtaining rest from the Spirit of God. Look for the promises. When you open your Bible, if you dare to do the Bible reading plan at TCC or some other method of constantly keeping your soul in the Bible, look for the promises of God. In this case, God promises you that Jesus has conquered death. Only he has the keys to death and Hades. Now it's your job to trust in these promises. Remember them and cling to them. In a helpful prayer, Pastor Scotty Smith states this reality in a different way. He says, you know, the good news here is God, your promises claim us. We don't claim them. You're not waiting for us to name and claim something here as though you have tied hands or you need our permission to do anything. No, you're calling us to love and trust you. When darkness holds your lovely face and we risk again resting on your unchanging grace. Jesus is alive so you shall live forever. That promise claims you today. Jesus is alive, so you will live forever. I love the way the New City Catechism speaks of the resurrection, the aliveness of Jesus. Listen to what it says. Christ triumphed over sin and death by being physically resurrected so that all who trust in him are raised to new life in this world and to everlasting life in the world to come, just as we will one day be resurrected, so this world will one day be restored. 
But those who do not trust in Christ will be raised to everlasting death. There's the flip side of the gospel. The only alternative to not resting in Jesus is to not believe him and not trust him. For those, Jesus says, your lot is to be left in your sin on the path of destruction and die an everlasting death. Herein is a call to trust, to rest. If you rest in Christ, you'll be a part of the great coming restoration and the great resurrection. But if you place your trust elsewhere, you will die forever. So let's trust in the living one together this year. Let's place our hope in him squarely and solely. Now said, verse 18 had two encouragements. That's the first one. Fear not. Rest in Jesus. He's conquered death. Here's the second one from verse 18. Jesus is alive forevermore as a worker. Jesus is alive forevermore working on your behalf. You might not think about Jesus as being a living being right now, working on your behalf, but he is. Absolutely he is. He's alive and he's busy. We see that probably most clearly in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. I'll read it for you. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 25, talking about Jesus. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. There's the work that Jesus is always doing. The word is always here. That's remarkable. You might work a lot, but you're not always working. You may say that. I'm always working, man. Can't get a day off. But Jesus is truly always working. He has not retired. He is always working, making intercessions for you. Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. He's holy, he's innocent, he's unstained, he's separated from sinners, he's exalted above the heaven. He has no need like those other high priests to offer sacrifices daily. So Jesus' work is not offering a lot of sacrifices on your behalf before God. He's only done one and that's all he needed. Why? Because he's innocent, he's unstained. did this once and for all when he offered up himself. It's no secret that this scripture is the basis for Charles Wesley's hymn that we sometimes sing. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, nor let that ransom sinner die. Alive, alive. Arise, my soul. Arise, my soul. He's alive. Arise. A lot can be said here, but I want to focus on one thing. As the living one, we see Jesus proclaiming before the Father 
that the cross is sufficient to save you. As the living one, we see Jesus proclaiming before the Father, the cross is sufficient to save each one of you. He's more qualified than any priest before him. His cross work was enough. The gospel tells us that Jesus' saving work is done. You couldn't do this work yourself because of your sin problem. The Bible tells us that though you do some good things, at the core, you're broken. You're unrighteous. You're a sinner. And that creates distance between you and a holy, loving God. How is the distance breached? How do we cross that distance? It's through the work of Jesus Christ. The Bible says you deserve punishment for your sins. But Jesus steps up in his death and says, I'll take that punishment. I'll be the substitute for you as God pours out his wrath on me. Therefore, swapping Jesus' holiness, his righteousness, his sinlessness for all of your sins so that after the swap is made, God looks on you not as a rebel, which you were, not as a sinner, which you were. He looks on you as his child, sinless judicially because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He died once so that you may live forever. Back in July 26th of 1945, there was an American supercruiser going across the Pacific Ocean during World War II. He delivered his cargo already, completed the mission, going back to safety when unfortunately the USS Indianapolis was spotted by a Japanese sub. At that time, the Japanese were actually trying out their new secret weapon. Tragically, they had developed kamikaze torpedoes. Volunteers would get in the torpedoes and they would actually steer them underwater at crafts. And of course, it was a suicide mission. But the captain of this Japanese sub noticed it was such an easy shot. He did not even need to use his kamikaze torpedoes. He would just fire six torpedoes in a ray. He did it. He nailed the USS Indianapolis. And here we have the largest maritime tragedy in U.S. history from the Navy. Over 1,000 men were on this boat. About 880 were dumped in the Pacific Ocean. Water wasn't frigid. But it was filled with so many sharks that it's actually referenced in the movie Jaws by the characters. Sailors began to drop. Some crawled up on rafts. Some had life preservers, including Lieutenant Thomas Conley. He was a chaplain on board. And he saw a need. He saw a need to haul people on rafts, so he did it. He swam over here. He encouraged somebody Get out of the water, there's sharks everywhere. And he hopped up on a raft himself. He knew that since the Indianapolis sunk in a matter of 12 minutes, there was no distress call that went out. 
He knew he was in for a long haul. He had to encourage these people, so he did. Biggest problem they had was dehydration. Can't drink the ocean water. And so after a while of being dehydrated, there was hallucinations. One individual would start seeing an oasis and he would start swimming towards the sharks. Thomas Conley grabbed him, put him back on the raft and said, let's do that tomorrow. Over and over again this happened. People started imagining that their fellow sailors were actually Japanese spies, so they started killing each other. Thomas Conley stepped in, said, let's wait. Let's just wait on that. Make sure about this. After three days of this, constantly, Lieutenant Thomas Conley died of exhaustion. But later, the Navy credited him for saving 67 members in this tragedy, as many of them were rescued later. Obviously, he died. He sacrificed himself so that others could be saved. In his death, Jesus sacrifices himself. He as your substitute. He dies so that you may live. The resurrection validates this. Think about it. If Jesus would not have rose from the dead, what would that mean? That means that God didn't accept his sacrifice, right? God keeps the punishment of death on Jesus, but when he came up, he proclaimed it's finished, price is paid, the resurrection is the stamp of God's approval, and all of you who follow Jesus will live and stand sinless judicially uncondemned before God, and that's good news. Truly, truly good news. This new year, I want you to find rest in this simple truth. Christ's resurrection proves that you don't have to save yourself. One writer said it this way, if you struggle to find Sabbath rest, it might be a gospel issue. Think about yourself for a moment. Think about yourself. Finding your identity in your work or being a people pleaser or using busyness to distract you from unhappiness, so much overwork is driven by self-justification efforts. We need to accomplish more and more because we're failing to apply to our hearts what Christ has already accomplished for us. So the most important thing to do during a Sabbath rest is refresh your heart with the fellowship with God and enjoy your status as his beloved child because of what Jesus has done once and for all. Earlier today, we heard the testimony from the Bensons. They spoke of discouragement, persisting sickness with their kids, isolation from quarantine, unable to do their work, fleeing from the war. I've been walking with them through their hard times and they're full of hope, but it's hard. And I know you have your own storms of life carrying you away today. But I praise God for Grayson's testimony. I praise God that many of you have said, this year I found rest in the Bible. I think we should keep it up in the new year. If you haven't been reading the word and seeing God there and resting in Jesus, what better time to start?
Got a clear calendar. We can find rest for your soul. Today we see Jesus as the first and the last ruling over history. We also see him as the living one. Victorious over death. Let's trust Christ together here this year and prove him as our treasure moment by moment. Fear not. Rest in Jesus. I want to invite you to pray with me now. I'm going to pray a prayer. This one I found in a book, Valley of Vision. You may have read the book. I think it's appropriate. I want to pray it over you now. So let's pray together. Oh, most high God, the thought of your infinite serenity can cheer us up today. For we are toiling, troubled, distressed, but you are forever at perfect peace. Your designs cause you no fear or care of unfulfillment. They stand fast as the eternal hills. Your power knows no bond, your goodness no end. And Lord, you bring order out of confusion and our defeats are your victories. You, the Lord God of unending power, you reign. We come to you now as forgiven sinners with cares, sorrows, to leave every concern entirely to you, every sin calling for Christ's precious blood, revive deep spirituality in our hearts this year. O Lord, let us live near to the great shepherd. Hear his voice, know its tones, follow his calls, keep us from being deceived by causing us to abide in the truth, Lord. Keep us from harm by helping us to walk in the power of spirit. Give us greater faith in the eternal truths. Burn into us by experience the things we already know to be true of you. And God, let us never be ashamed of the truth of the gospel that we may bear its reproach, vindicate it, see Jesus as its essence. Know in it the power of the Spirit. Lord, help us. For we're often lukewarm, chill, confidence, Our sin makes us forget you. God, let the weeds that grow in our soul be cut at the roots. Grant us to know that we truly live only when we live to you, that all else is trifling. Your presence alone can make us holy, devout, strong, and happy. Abide in us, gracious God. May we fear not this year, and may we rest in Jesus. Amen.